You are listening to Separate and Unequal, shining a light on education in America. I want you to think about a time in your life when things went downhill. Really downhill. What was going on? Do you remember where you were? What did you lose or have to sacrifice? Did you think you'd ever get out of it? Have you ever been so far down a hill that just the idea of climbing out of it is almost impossible to imagine? Now imagine deciding that you aren't just going to climb the hill in front of you, but the mountain behind it, and the mountain behind that one too. Imagine hanging on to that belief year after year after year as you keep climbing the same hill. Imagine finally nearing the top just to get knocked back down again and again and again. This might sound like the makings of Greek mythology, but it's not. This is the story of Kendra. I wouldn't say drugs is the key to trying to get rid of the stress and stuff, but I guess people have different ways to cope with stuff that's going on with them. Like when I was going through it, I didn't look for alcohol or weed or like what my generation does when they're going through stuff, like what they'll go to. I just, my thing was music. They wonder why I'm always writing bars about my life But getting through the struggle keep me smiling every night Bumping heads with my mama for some commas wasn't right She not seeing that I'm saving every night to get her right But I'ma be alright no matter what I got my fam In high school is when my grandmother passed away My freshman year So that's when everything just went downhill Like I was just homeless, living from house to house, friends, different family members who really didn't want us there. Yes, they opened their doors to me and my mom, but they would say, okay, how long are you going to be here? Or how long do you think you need? I mean, how long do you think it takes to get an apartment? It's just not going to just happen at the back of the eye. You got to save money. If you, And I always say, if you felt like that, you always felt like that. The death of Kendra's grandmother dealt a serious blow to the stability of the family. See, Kendra's grandmother had a house. Not just a house, a home. Kendra's mom was raised there, and so was Kendra. It was the center of the family, and then it was gone. We were just li- after that, we were just living from house to house. Kendra and her mom tried staying with family for a while, but their stays were never long enough to really build any sense of stability. It's hard asking relatives to take in a woman battling drug addiction, her teenage daughter, and a young child. Because it wasn't just me and my mom. It was my niece as well, my little niece. She was she was little at the time, and I just watch out for her. Kendra's sister was incarcerated, and custody of Kendra's niece had been given to her mom. So now, it was the three of them. Regardless of what 
where we were staying, she kept, she always had the toiletries and stuff because she never wanted to ask people for that because we already stand in their house. And we had a car at the time too. So she had stuff that she didn't want to bring into whoever house we was at in the trunk and stuff like our clothes or the, like our own food and drinks and stuff in the trunk. She, my mama, it's like one thing about my mom, If even if we're at, someone else's house even though she's on drugs she still will make sure we're good and she did Kendra is equally open about her mother's abilities as she is her shortcomings while they may have been homeless and living from place to place Kendra's mother made sure they had the things they needed to make it day to day food clothes toothbrushes shampoo. The sense of responsibility and pride in providing for yourself was instilled in Kendra when she was young. She told me so herself. But she didn't have to. Anyone who's ever lived in poverty recognizes the steps to that dance. When I arranged to meet Kendra, I told her that I would buy her breakfast. I suggested a few places, we agreed on one. As we waited to order, I pointed out the menu made sure to mention items at a variety of price points so she would know price wasn't a constraint. She decided on the waffles. I then asked her what she wanted to drink. Silence. I pointed out the coffee and the juice. In her jovial tone, she mentioned that she didn't really drink coffee, but was more of a tea person. So I pointed out the teas. She paused and then said she was pretty picky about her tea and smiled. We ordered our food, mine with coffee, Kendra sans the liquid. The mother, former nanny, and teacher alarms in me were all on red alert for potential choking at the idea of Kendra eating her waffles without so much as a water nearby. I asked her again if she wanted something to drink. Kendra laughed, looked down, and then finally admitted what I had suspected. Kendra didn't want me spending any more money on her. We had agreed to breakfast. Not breakfast and tea or breakfast and coffee, or breakfast and juice, or whatever else I was offering. I nodded. When you don't have a lot of money, you get really good at making rules, parameters, to ensure that you're never put in a position where you have to admit you don't have any money. And so I had to respect Kendra's parameters, as long as we played by the rules, breakfast, and nothing else, then everything was okay. No matter how difficult things were, or how rough life got, Kendra knew she was going to be okay, as long as her mother was there. The problem was, Kendra's mom was often not there. Like, one thing about my mom, she goes in and out of jail, in and out, in and out of jail. That's how she always been, not even trying to down talk my mom, but this, this, my mom, she's always been in and out of jail. If you're not familiar with the Gordian Knot that is the criminal justice system, you may be shaking your head wondering why Kendra's mom just couldn't get things together. Granted, it sounds like Kendra's mom could have made some better choices at certain points in her life. The reality is we all could. Here's the thing, people don't plan on going to jail. No one wakes up in the morning and sketches out their day with it ending in the Cook County Jailhouse. Now, I'm not sure why Kendra's mom was in and out of jail. But I can tell you that once you have a record, you can be pretty sure you're going to end up back in jail. 
Not because you want to, but because the system isn't really designed for you to end up anywhere else. A 2010 report by the New York State Department of Corrections estimated that approximately 25,000 inmates were released in 2010 in the state of New York. Of those, more than a third were reincarcerated, not for committing new crimes, but for parole violations, such as failing to show up for an appointment with their parole officer. Did you know that not having a stable address is a parole violation? So is failing to pass a drug test. My mom was on house arrest, and they ended up, the people, the sheriff people came and got my mom in the middle of the night, and they said that they just came and got everyone who was on house arrest because the boxes was going off or something, something about that. But my mom didn't do anything. They just took everybody back. At the time when Kendra's mom was on house arrest, Kendra, her mother, and her niece were staying at the house of an acquaintance. I think we can all agree that staying at the home of people you barely know is less than ideal, especially when you don't know how long you're going to be there, and you are relying on them as your only source of housing. But at least Kendra had her mother there to protect her. Now that her mother was back in jail, Kendra was on her own to look out for herself and her niece. And it was uncomfortable because they had big gopher-type rats. We seen them. And they was in the walls. We could hear them in the walls, the rats. And it was just me and my niece. Just living anywhere we could until we was able to get back on our feet. And they did get back on their feet, right as Kendra's classmates were applying to college. Kendra applied to college, too. She was accepted to a small private college that offered both associates and bachelor's degrees, and enrolled as a full-time student that fall. Going away to college was in some ways a blessing. Kendra didn't have to deal with the day-to-day hardships of the past. Her mother had an apartment now, and things were looking up. Kendra was finally nearing the top of the hill. After years of climbing, she could see the other side. Until... My mom ended up going to jail, and the the landlord didn't want any money from us. He just wanted us to leave, so we got evicted. After we got evicted, she would say... She found us an apartment, and I would believe her. I'm thinking about how I'm going to decorate my room, and I come home for break. I got all my bags, and then we just end up we just end up at someone else's house that wasn't our house. And I wouldn't. I asked her like, I thought you said we you got us an apartment or something. And you know, I catch an attitude, but then I just get over it because I remember like. I'm going back to school. I'm only dealing with this for temporary. And so every semester after break, Kendra would pack up her things and leave the house that they were staying in temporarily. But she'd also leave behind her mother and her niece. When family is all you have in the world, leaving them behind is heartbreaking. I would feel bad because my niece would say she want to go with me or I miss you. But I, I just, I just couldn't stay. Like I, I would feel bad, but I have to go. I gotta tell her I gotta go. Go. 
And Kendra would go back to school, back to her college life with her college bed and her shower and her daily meal and her lectures and her notes and her tests and her papers. It was a lot to manage. But I still felt bad because I'm away at school where I can lay down, eat a meal, shower when I want, and my mom is just out in the world not being able to have a stable environment. When you're the highly functional person in your family, you don't have to just be highly functional for you. You have to be highly functional for everyone. She was using drugs at this time of situation still. Like, yeah, she still was. And that's why I also felt like I needed to come home because you got my niece. It's, we got to get this together. Like, got to get this together. And I felt like it was my responsibility, even though it wasn't. But I felt like it was because I didn't want my niece to get taken away. My sister would call from jail, and she would ask me to. She wouldn't want me to, like, drop out of school. She would say, you could just go to school, a community college in Chicago, and get an apartment, Kendra. You could do you could do both. She was like, just help mommy. She always said that. She was like, mommy, all we got, we, she's all we've known. Yeah, she, you know mommy ain't going to do what she says she's going to do. She was like, you need to help her. She can't do this on her own, so... And it didn't even really help the situation. It was just, I felt better, even though we were still living house to house again. I could have stayed at school, but I felt like, what was that helping? I didn't feel like that was helping anything, but being like a more a problem on my mom. So Kendra decided to come home. Out of curiosity, I asked her, how close were you to finishing? I didn't finish my associates. I was three credits off. Three credits? Yes. Not three classes? No, just three credits. Three credits? Yes. That's why I was going back to finish that and to start towards my bachelor's. But I just couldn't, like... Hearing that Kendra was three credits away from finishing her degree hurts. It actually evokes a pain in my stomach, in my chest. She was so close. To put that in perspective, to earn an associate's degree at Lincoln College takes about 20 classes. Kendra had completed 19. When my mama came home, we ended up staying at this place where people can come and get help resources to pay their light bill and get shelter as well. So we ended up staying there for two weeks. This was around the holidays. It was cold out. Then we ended up getting placed in the shelter. And we got put out the shelter. They put our stuff in the alley. They packed all our belongings and just put in the alley like we was just like animals. I, that's how I felt. And I was angry, but it was like, what can we do? This is their place. This is their rules. They say we broke a rule, so... Hey, they put us out. So we got put out the shelter. We ended up going to the storage place where we had our clothing at, where most of our stuff was at. And we ended up sleeping in there for, I don't know how long, but it was like a few days, a couple of days, because then 
they had locked us out after we left because they could see like that we were sleeping in there. You're not allowed to sleep in a shelter, a storage place. So they locked us out, and then we ended up living at one of my mom's brothers. Kendra goes on like this for a while about how they bounced from place to place to place to place. All the while, she was still focused on finishing that last course she needed to get her associate's degree. She had enrolled in a nearby community college. It was just one term. That's all she needed. One class, one term. But by the end of hopping from place to place to place, she wasn't living anywhere near campus. In fact, she was all the way on the other side of town. I was in Calumet City. I went all the way to Calumet City. And mind you, I was in Malcolm X going to school. So I'm traveling from Calumet City all the way to Madison Jackson or whatever the school at. And I ended up failing the class because I was traveling so far because I, I, I would keep missing classes because I couldn't keep getting there because the buses would stop running, the pace buses in Kaima City. We tell young people in America, especially those who have experienced the legacy of systematic oppression, that education is the way out. We promise them that if they work hard, harder than their peers, stay focused on their goals and stay out of trouble, they'll make it out of poverty. But we, as a society, completely underestimate how crushing some of those obstacles can be. How does this happen? How does a young woman invest years pursuing her education, get so close to fulfilling that dream, only to end up back where she started? I wanted to know. It was about a year later. I started my job as alumni coordinator. Prior to alumni coordinator, I was working as a college counselor. Kendra's story is unique for many reasons, not just because of the hardships she endured, but because of the supports she received as well. See, Kendra attended a high school that offered intense supports in the college application process. This is still not the norm in public high schools and most private ones for that matter. But Kendra's high school did provide these supports. They helped her identify potential colleges, complete college applications, and even helped her navigate the often daunting process of pursuing financial aid. Supports like these are thankfully becoming more embedded in high schools across the nation, albeit slowly. Chicago has a unique cluster of external partners that provide these supports to some high schools. It's a piecemeal approach to a more systematic problem, but it's progress nonetheless. Where Kendra's high school really differed was in their provision of supports for students after they left high school. Traditional public schools do not have a budget for such a role. Schools are traditionally funded on a per-pupil basis. Once you've graduated, you're no longer a pupil and there's no funding for you. Kendra's school had received private donor funds and was therefore able to continue providing supports for alumni of the high school. Kendra was on Monica Roa's caseload. So when Kendra left Lincoln College, it didn't go unnoticed. I was introduced to Kendra by a colleague. She had just come home from Lincoln College and she needed assistance in getting a plan together. So there was a lot of talking, sort of pulling information from her. Um, it's not just a matter of, oh, hey, I'm back. It's trying to figure out why are you back? What happened? Uh, figuring out, okay, so she didn't finish. 
her associate's degree because she was short three credits. So it's not just a matter of, okay, let's get you in a class. It's then reaching out to Lincoln College and figuring out what kind of credits she needed and then where could she go and could she get there uh, and then finding a way to pay for it. If you're taking just one class at a community college, um, FAFSA's not going to pay for that. They'll pay for a full load of classes. Uh, and so in terms of paying for the one class, it was about, I think, $800 for the class. Right about now is when I erupted into a profanity-laced tirade. $800 for a single course at a community college? I couldn't believe it. So I went and looked it up myself. And a single course at a city college in Chicago is about $600 plus fees and books. So someone like Kendra, who is without a home, working a minimum wage job to provide for her mother and her niece, and without the ability to apply for financial aid, has got to somehow find $800 so she can finish one course to earn an associate's degree that she is almost done with. What the f***? And here's the thing. I know this. I was a college counselor. I've done the math. But there's just something about being confronted with the obstacle that that $800 can impose. It becomes a giant wall. Now I'm about ready to throw my hands up in the air at this point. How the heck is she supposed to ever finish? And then I remember Kendra went to a high school that had special support services, thankfully. And so, I mean, she's lucky because we have scholarships for those exactly in Kendra's situation. That is to say that, um, but for one class, they they could get their bachelor's. But for one class, they were going to get their associates. So we did have her fill out a scholarship uh, application and um, we paid for the class. But remember when Kendra said she had to move to Calumet City and commute into Malcolm X College? And that she wasn't able to complete the course because she was having a difficulty getting there with public transportation. Yeah, that was this course. So that scholarship money? Gone. Kendra's associates? Still a class away. So there was a lot of back and forth when she didn't complete the class. Um, at some point she told me that um, she had moved again. Now mind you, during this whole time, she was moving and then at some point... She contacted me and she said that she had moved to a suburb and that she couldn't um, finish the course, which was a little devastating for us in that um, you just you want so much for her to do well uh, because she was also working two jobs. And I mean, this this young lady was going to do whatever it took to make sure she had she was helping her family or to make sure she finished. But there, at, at some point, too. It became impossible. So I ask, given the school's resources, was there any way to connect her with affordable housing? Was that outside the scope of the resources that they provided, or did she have those connections? Believe me, I asked. I asked, um, is, is there a way to be able to get her set up in, in, in an apartment. Um, and there, there are always caveats, as in, um, at that point, she would have to have been in a shelter. But I think when I was helping her, she was with, living with a cousin, and it was just, she was there by herself. And then that didn't work out, so then she went to move elsewhere in the suburbs. But to qualify to live in a shelter, 
she would have to be homeless. That is, not even living with a cousin or bouncing about, but rather absolutely homeless on the streets. And how would I ask Kendra, you know, be homeless for a while so we can get you in a shelter, and then that would qualify you then for subsidized apartment for young women. Like most educators, Miss Roa pours a lot of herself into her students. This isn't just work. It's personal. So we grew up in South Chicago, um, and I stayed there till, I think we stayed there till I was 10 years old, and then, um, I mean, South Chicago is definitely a lower income neighborhood. Um, and then we moved on up to the east side. Oh, man. <laughs> exactly. Uh, to the, um, to the southeast side of Chicago. Um, yeah, and we just lived an ordinary life. We, um, nothing too eventful. My dad was a steel worker and my mom was stay at home mom. But my dad died suddenly. It was very sudden. I was about 15 years old. And so suddenly, definitely the world, our world changed. My dad, who, who provided for us, he was gone and that security was gone. Like Kendra, Monica knows what it's like to be a teenager in Chicago and have your world come down around you. Um, I went to work, my sister, my brother, and, and we did the best we could. I worked till midnight and I'd do homework, go back to school. That's what I did. When Monica was a teenager, only about half of CPS high school students would make it to graduation. In some schools in Chicago, students were more likely to drop out than graduate. And the college completion rate? Latino females like Miss Roa only had about a 10% chance of earning a four-year college degree. I went to uh, George Washington High School on the southeast side of Chicago. When I was in high school, no one was telling me or talking to me about going away to college. Uh, they had one counselor. I think there were 500 students uh, graduating and um, took the ACT without knowing why I was taking the ACT. I thought it was just another exam. I think I was number five in the class. So I, you know, I definitely had prospects and University of Chicago had, had asked me to come visit and they were offering me money, but I, I had no idea that that was a good thing. And I just thought, well, heck no, I can't afford that. Those of us who study inequities in higher education can become obsessed with the phenomenon of college access. College access refers to a student's combination of test scores, coursework, and grades, and whether their particular combination makes them more or less likely to be admitted to higher-performing colleges. But access to college alone isn't enough to change student outcomes. Monica had access to the state's most elite colleges, but without the information and financial support necessary to turn prospects into reality, all the access in the world would not have been enough to overcome the gap in opportunity that remained. And we aren't just talking about affording tuition. In recent years, elite colleges like the University of Chicago have made efforts to extend full tuition scholarships to Chicago public school graduates but gaining admissions, even for highly qualified students, is extremely difficult. And there remain significant costs beyond the $50,000 in annual tuition. Books and fees alone can total more than $5,000 a year. And that doesn't cover a single meal, not one slice of bread. When I was a college counselor, it was not uncommon for my students to have two working parents who together didn't make more than $30,000. For these families, even if a student lived at home, 
they would need to borrow a minimum of $30,000 to $40,000 just for the opportunity to sit in a classroom at a school like the University of Chicago. Not to live on campus like everyone else, that would be another $60,000, or to attend study abroad trips or whatever other amazing opportunities were being offered. You would need to borrow as much as both of your parents earned together in an entire year just for the opportunity to sit in a classroom. That is what we call an opportunity gap. And at some point, it was probably late in the year, I was noticing that other people were applying to college and I thought, I should probably do that. And this University of Illinois application came by and I thought, let's do that. And I got in and I went off to college. But, I mean, my mom did not want me to go. I told her about it and she was mad. And Because a young lady, a young Mexican lady, does not move out of her home unless there's something wrong. But I knew I had to get away. If I didn't go, I wouldn't finish. Family life was, was hard. And I knew that if I stayed, I would probably just be sucked in and end up having to work full time just to bring in money, just to take care of things, just to make sure that everything was fine. The obligation that Kendra felt to help financially support her mother and her niece is not unlike the obligation that Monica felt to financially support her mother and her siblings. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for low-income students and first-generation students to experience the type of pressure that Monica and Kendra faced. For low-income families, every working individual brings in crucial money that will determine the stability of the family unit. Focusing on the potential future returns of a college degree is something that not every family can afford to do. Monica knew that if she stayed home, the pressure to place the immediate financial stability of the family above her future earnings would be too great. And so she left. I mean, I went to school without understanding. I'd never even visited U of I. I didn't realize that there were some 40,000 students there. It was a little bit of a culture shock. I didn't even know how to ask for help, but I knew I had to finish. But even when I was there, I also had this guilt for leaving my family behind, leaving my mother behind, because she she needed help. And so I would go home almost every weekend to help decorate cakes, because that's what we did to uh, get some income in the family. And so I decorated wedding cakes, I decorated quinceanera cakes, I birthday cakes. And at some point, I remember telling my mother that you know, this was not helping me. I, it was hurting my grades. And my mother's response was, well, you should come home then. Somewhere I found the strength to tell her that I wasn't going to come home. And that I had to finish. And that I was going to stop coming home every weekend to make cakes. Obviously, Kendra's story is, is difficult. Uh, so I do understand... A wee bit of where she's coming from. I know the wheel of policy turns slowly, but listening to Kendra and then Monica, it seems like the policy wheel of higher education has ceased to turn at all. Low-income students, first-generation college students, and underrepresented students are still having to fight their way into higher education and pay a relatively heftier price for the same opportunities available to more affluent students. Stagnant is the word that comes to mind. What we need 
is a concerted effort to push the conversation of college affordability to the forefront of discussions in this country. What we need is Sarah Goldrick Rabb. To understand what makes Sarah Goldrick Rabb such a formidable opponent, you first need to understand what she's not. And you can do that pretty quickly by hanging out in her corner of the Twitterverse. What you won't find? The typical Twitter feed of far too many researchers and academics, full of judgment-free comments and neutral positions. Sarah Goldrick Rabb is full of spit and fire. And in academia, we call this coveted place where you get to speak your mind without worrying about losing your job tenure. And Sarah Goldrick Rabb has it. What else does she have? The backbone and funding to tackle the kind of issues that Kendra has constantly struggled with. Housing insecurity, food insecurity, and college affordability in general. I had the opportunity to speak with Sarah Goldrick Rabb about her work, her life, and how she came to study higher education. I remember visiting my very first community college in southern Illinois. It was Lincoln Land Community College. And figuring out that this was really where the American dream really came face-to-face with realities of budgets and policies and people's assumptions about the poor. Those assumptions about the poor that Sarah Goldrick Rabb is talking about are exactly what she confronts in her new book, Paying the Price. If you haven't read Paying the Price, you should. It's her most recent book and it provides a vivid portal into the financial struggles of college students in America. The book is based on research that followed 3,000 students attending either a two-year or four-year college in Wisconsin. All of the students in the sample were Pell eligible, with their families making an average of about $25,000 a year. Overwhelmingly, the students would have been the first in their family to complete college. The area where we feel like, you know, the team has really made an impact is in this area of living expenses during college. Um, This is a thing that some people call non-educational costs. It always blows my mind because, you know, food is an educational expense. You can't learn if you can't eat. But for the longest time, people were talking about tuition and fees, and maybe they were talking about books. They weren't talking about housing. They weren't talking about food. And our reason for talking about that does not come from any sort of preset agenda. It actually comes straight out of our research. When Sarah's team first started, they had no idea what to expect. What they found questioned many of the assumptions that we hold about the experiences of college students. But again, we're not just talking about tuition. Affording basic living expenses was a serious problem for about 40% of the sample, and a quarter reported putting off medical or dental care. Even more concerning, about 20% reported having to skip meals or ration their food because they couldn't afford it. I want you to let that sink in. We tout college as a mechanism that can pull individuals out of poverty, and yet we're asking a significant portion of college students, predominantly from families of lower incomes, to sacrifice even basic needs, such as food or shelter, just for the possibility of an education. For those of you who are skeptical that students are genuinely going hungry to pursue college, Let me give you a slice of anecdotal evidence that might resonate better than the statistics. When I was a junior in college, I was working about 30 hours a week at a coffee shop while taking a full load of classes. I didn't live a lavish life. But between rent, gas, credit card bills, utilities, books, I was running a zero balance in the bank more often than not. 
At the time, my sister, who has a degenerative neurological disorder and was diagnosed with schizophrenia, was homeless, living in a tent by the river. It was winter, and the park ranger had found her tent and made her pack up and leave. With nowhere else to go, I brought her home to my apartment. I put her to bed, told her to sleep, and I went to work. While I was at work that day, she woke up, found herself hungry, went to the refrigerator, and ate a piece of meat. It wasn't mine, it was my roommate's. I couldn't afford to buy meat. At that point, I was eating one meal a day, the free meal I got at work. I got a phone call that morning from my roommate. I was embarrassed that I had to tell my roommate that I couldn't afford to pay her back for the food my sister ate. And I was even more embarrassed to tell my sister that I didn't have any food to give her. That day, I brought my free meal home for my sister. So trust me, I know why food insecurity and housing insecurity is on my radar of things to be concerned with in higher education. But what makes someone like Sarah Goldrick Rabb interested in it? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I haven't really talked a lot about what ended up happening, but many, many years ago now, actually 10 years ago, 2008, students told us that they were going hungry. Students told us about becoming homeless in college. And we honestly didn't know this was a thing. One of the things I I loved doing, and I don't get to do as much now because of time, is convene my research team, sometimes as much as like once every semester, for day-long meetings. And one of the things that happened, we had one of those day-long meetings at my house. And my graduate students and, you know, staff members were sitting around, and we had each decided to read the interview transcripts of a few individual students. And I actually, what I really remember was there were tears. And there were tears among sort of the kind of people, including male researchers who I never would have expected. And what I really saw happening was people saying, like, there's just something really wrong here. This system is much, like, things seem a lot more broken than we expected. Everybody was sort of all in on, okay, what are we going to do? And, I mean, we really didn't know. I think it took us a while before we realized that that was even possible to try to weigh in on actually fixing the system. And so we began pursuing it in our studies. And now, over the course of 10 years, I can say we've, you know, led probably close to eight or nine different studies now on this topic, but we've also really engaged both the practitioners and the policymakers. That's everything from, you know, getting, for example, the local housing authority in a community or the local food bank in a community to talk about this issue and to work on it, to getting, frankly, President Obama's administration to work on it. Academics have a notorious reputation for looking down on the world around them. We call this elite and disconnected viewpoint the ivory tower. It's what allows privileged individuals the luxury of shaping the lives of the less privileged around them without actually having to get their hands dirty. Sarah Goldegrab works really hard to exist beyond the ivory tower. Her team takes a rare approach to research, one that I'm particularly fond of. They've created a research space that directly involves and informs not just macro policies at the federal and state level, but at the local level and even within individual classrooms. How do they do this? By involving practitioners, by involving students, by involving the people directly affected by policy. 
you know, under President Obama, I would say that, you know, the U.S. Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, the White House, I was probably talking to these people at least every month, if not more than that. And obviously, times have changed. Now we're working with governor's offices. um, We're working with state and local representatives. um, And now we're also really seeing a wonderful surge of um, innovative practitioners from all over the country, both inside higher ed and in communities, take an interest. It is such enormously rewarding work to not only talk about my research, which is what you know most professors do, but to talk about how we're going to change things because of that research, and to watch them go from you know sort of sleepy in the audience to active and engaged and excited that there is something they can do to help the students they see every day. So what exactly would Sarah Goldrick Rabb recommend we do to help students like Kendra? Here are a few basic ideas that she's laid out in paying the price. One, we need to let go of the myth that college is affordable for the vast majority of students from both low-income families and middle-income families. The way the current financial system is laid out, lower-income families and middle-income families are being priced out of too many college options. Two. We need to change our definitions about the cost of attendance to include the real-life costs students have to face, not just the bare-bones budget of tuition and fees. Three, we need to be painfully clear about the requirements to receive and continue to receive the financial aid students are offered. Students often do not realize that there are specific academic markers and benchmarks that must be met to receive financial aid or that some types of aid, like Parent PLUS loans, are not guaranteed. They're only available year by year and parents have to reapply and get approved based on their income and credit score. Four, colleges should provide students with reliable, longitudinal estimates of what the cost of college will look like for all four years, not just the first year. Colleges sometimes offer diminishing grants that make a student's first year of college appear more financially reasonable than what they can be expected to shell out for years to come. This is purely a truth and advertising issue, and it's not a difficult one for colleges to fix. Lastly, there are immediate fixes that we need on college campuses. We need easily accessible emergency funds to be available on campus to students struggling to cover food, rent, utility, transportation. There is no reason a student like Kendra should have to be forced to choose between spending a night on the streets and getting to class the next day. There just isn't. I think it's been a tough couple of years, especially for academics. I just hope people realize how much worse it is for those who are not professors, um, those who are students, and how serious the situation you know, is at this moment where people are incredibly vulnerable. And I mean, I know that some folks can say, well, it's not my job. You know, my job is to do research. It's not to do something about it. I, I think it's getting increasingly hard to, to say that or to justify it anymore. And I think what you can say instead is, I don't know how to do anything about it. I don't have the skills to do anything about it. But I think we have an obligation to go get the skills and do something. And that's why I love Sarah Goldrick Rabb. But what does all of this mean for Kendra? It was just a lot. Like, I could go on and on. Like, it just was crazy of what I was going through. But today, I'm grateful that we are able to have our own apartment again. We're under the same roof again. And we are 
almost a family in the end. At the end of our interview, Kendra gave me an update on where she was with getting that course completed. Here's what she said. Getting, I'm taking that one class for my three credits for Lincoln at Kennedy King. And I think I'm going to pass it now because I'm stable. There's no, I'm right, I live right up the street from the school. So it's like no excuses as to why I can't pass this class, even if it's hard. And then, after I turned the recorder off, she looked at me, and I could tell there was something else she wanted to share. She didn't want to tell you in her own words, so she said I could share for her. Three weeks ago, Kendra's mom didn't come up with her half of the rent. The landlord had given them until Friday. It was Wednesday now. And then the other thing? On her way to meet me, Kendra found out that she had lost her job. Kendra's story doesn't have a nice, neat ending. I'm sorry to tell you that there are millions of other students out there with similar stories. Our sympathies won't change a damn thing, only our actions. Decide equity in higher education matters to you, not because you or your children are directly affected by higher education policies, but because we are all affected by an education system that stratifies and restricts opportunities across generations. I'm Callie Clark, and you've been listening to Separate and Unequal, shining a light on education in America. Like us on Facebook, Separate and Unequal, or follow us on Twitter at Ed.